This is section 12 of Presidential Farewell and Last Addresses. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. President James K. Polk's Last Address to Congress, Part 2. Read by John Greenman. The expenditures for the same period, including the necessary payment on account of the principal and interest of the public debt, and the principal and interest of the first installment due to Mexico on the 30th of May next, and other expenditures growing out of the war to be paid during the present year, will amount, including the reimbursement of Treasury notes, to the sum of $54,195,275.06, leaving an estimated balance in the Treasury on the 1st of July, 1849, of two millions eight hundred and fifty three thousand six hundred and ninety four dollars and eighty four cents the secretary of the treasury will present as required by law the estimate of the receipts and expenditures for the next fiscal year the expenditures are estimated for that year are thirty three millions two hundred and thirteen thousand one hundred and fifty two dollars and seventy three cents including three millions seven hundred and ninety nine thousand one hundred and two dollars and eighteen cents for the interest on the public debt and three millions five hundred and forty thousand dollars for the principal and interest due to mexico on the thirtieth of may eighteen fifty leaving the sum of twenty five millions eight hundred and seventy four thousand fifty dollars and thirty five cents which it is believed will be ample for the ordinary peace expenditures. The operations of the Tariff Act of 1846 have been such during the past year as fully to meet the public expectation and to confirm the opinion heretofore expressed of the wisdom of the change in our revenue system which was effected by it. The receipts under it into the treasury for the first fiscal year after its enactment exceeded by the sum of five millions forty four thousand four hundred and three dollars and nine cents the amount collected during the last fiscal year under the tariff act of eighteen forty two ending the thirtieth of june eighteen forty six the total revenue realized from the commencement of its operation on the first of december eighteen forty six until the close of the last quarter on the thirtieth of september last being twenty two months was fifty six millions six hundred and fifty four thousand five hundred and sixty three dollars and seventy nine cents being a much larger sum than was ever before received from duties during any equal period during the tariff acts of eighteen twenty four eighteen twenty eight eighteen thirty two and eighteen forty two whilst by the repeal of highly protective and prohibitory duties the revenue has been increased the taxes on the people have been diminished they have been relieved from the heavy amounts with which they were burdened under former laws in the form of increased prices or bounties paid to favored classes and pursuits the predictions which were made that the tariff act of eighteen forty six would reduce the amount of revenue below that collected under the act of eighteen forty two and would prostrate the business and 
destroy the prosperity of the country have not been verified with an increased and increasing revenue the finances are in a highly flourishing condition agriculture commerce and navigation are prosperous the prices of manufactured fabrics and of other products are much less injuriously affected than was to have been anticipated from the unprecedented revulsions which during the last and the present year have overwhelmed the industry and paralyzed the credit and commerce of so many great and enlightened nations of europe severe commercial revulsions abroad have always heretofore operated to depress and often to affect disastrously almost every branch of american industry the temporary depression of a portion of our manufacturing interests is the effect of foreign causes and is far less severe than has prevailed on all former similar occasions it is believed that looking to the great aggregate of all our interests the whole country was never more prosperous than at the present period and never more rapidly advancing in wealth and population neither the foreign war in which we have been involved nor the loans which have absorbed so large a portion of our capital nor the commercial revulsion in great britain in eighteen forty seven nor the paralysis of credit and commerce throughout europe in eighteen forty eight have affected injuriously to any considerable extent any of the great interests of the country or arrested our onward march to greatness wealth and power had the disturbances in europe not occurred our commerce would undoubtedly have been still more extended and would have added still more to the national wealth and public prosperity but notwithstanding these disturbances the operations of the revenue system established by the tariff act of eighteen forty six have been so generally beneficial to the government and the business of the country that no change in its provisions is demanded by a wise public policy and none is recommended the operations of the constitutional treasury established by the act of the sixth of august eighteen forty six in the receipt custody and disbursement of the public money have continued to be successful under this system the public finances have been carried through a foreign war involving the necessity of loans and extraordinary expenditures and requiring distant transfers and disbursements without embarrassment and no loss has occurred of any of the public money deposited under its provisions whilst it has proved to be safe and useful to the government its effects have been most beneficial upon the business of the country it has tended powerfully to secure an exemption from that inflation and fluctuation of the paper currency so injurious to domestic industry and rendering so uncertain the rewards of labor and it is believed has largely contributed to preserve the whole country from a serious commercial revulsion such as often occurred under the bank deposit system in the year eighteen forty seven there was a revulsion in the business of great britain of great extent and intensity which was followed by failures in that kingdom unprecedented in number and amount of losses this is believed to be the first instance 
when such disastrous bankruptcies occurring in a country with which we have such extensive commerce produced little or no injurious effect upon our trade or currency we remained but little affected in our money market and our business and industry were still prosperous and progressive during the present year nearly the whole continent of europe has been convulsed by civil war and revolutions attended by numerous bankruptcies by an unprecedented fall in their public securities and an almost universal paralysis of commerce and industry and yet although our trade and the prices of our products have been somewhat unfavorably affected by these causes we have escaped a revulsion our money market is comparatively easy and public and private credit have advanced and improved it is confidently believed that we have been saved from their effect by the salutary operation of the constitutional treasury it is certain that if the twenty-four millions of specie imported into the country during the fiscal year ending on thirtieth of june eighteen forty seven had gone into the banks as to a great extent it must have done it would in the absence of this system have been made the basis of augmented bank paper issues probably to an amount not less than sixty millions or seventy millions of dollars producing as an inevitable consequence of an inflated currency extravagant prices for a time and wild speculation which must have been followed on the reflux to europe the succeeding year of so much of that specie by the prostration of the business of the country the suspension of the banks and most extensive bankruptcies occurring as this would have done at a period when the country was engaged in a foreign war when considerable loans of specie were required for distant disbursements and when the banks the fiscal agents of the government and the depositories of its money were suspended the public credit must have sunk and many millions of dollars as was the case during the war of eighteen twelve must have been sacrificed in discounts upon loans and upon the depreciated paper currency which the government would have been compelled to use under the operations of the constitutional treasury not a dollar has been lost by the depreciation of the currency the loans required to prosecute the war with mexico were negotiated by the secretary of the treasury above par realizing a large premium to the government the restraining effect of the system upon the tendencies to excessive paper issues by banks has saved the government from heavy losses and thousands of our business men from bankruptcy and ruin the wisdom of the system has been tested by the experience of the last two years and it is the dictate of sound policy that it should remain undisturbed the modifications in some of the details of this measure involving none of its essential principles heretofore recommended are again presented for your favorable consideration in my message of the sixth of july last transmitting to congress the ratified treaty of peace with mexico i recommended the adoption of measures for the speedy payment of the public debt in reiterating that recommendation 
i refer you to the considerations presented in that message in its support the public debt including that authorized to be negotiated in pursuance of existing laws and including treasury notes amounted at that time to sixty five millions seven hundred and seventy eight thousand four hundred and fifty dollars and forty one cents funded stock of the united states amounting to about half a million of dollars has been purchased as authorized by law since that period and the public debt has thus been reduced the details of which will be presented in the annual report of the secretary of the treasury the estimates of expenditures for the next fiscal year submitted by the secretary of the treasury it is believed will be ample for all necessary purposes if the appropriations made by congress shall not exceed the amount estimated the means in the treasury will be sufficient to defray all the expenses of the government to pay off the next installment of three millions of dollars to mexico which will fall due on the thirtieth of may next and still a considerable surplus will remain which should be applied to the further purchase of the public stock and reduction of the debt should enlarged appropriations be made the necessary consequence will be to postpone the payment of the debt though our debt as compared with that of most other nations is small it is our true policy and in harmony with the genius of our institutions that we should present to the world the rare spectacle of a great republic possessing vast resources and wealth wholly exempt from public indebtedness this would add still more to our strength and give to us a still more commanding position among the nations of the earth the public expenditures should be economical and be confined to such necessary objects as are clearly within the powers of congress all such as are not absolutely demanded should be postponed and the payment of the public debt at the earliest practicable period should be a cardinal principle of our public policy for the reason assigned in my last annual message i repeat the recommendation that a branch of the mint of the united states be established at the city of new york the importance of this measure is greatly increased by the acquisition of the rich mines of the precious metals in new mexico and california and especially in the latter i repeat the recommendation heretofore made in favor of the graduation and reduction of the price of such of the public lands as have been long offered in the market and have remained unsold and in favor of extending the rights of preemption to actual settlers on the unsurveyed as well as the surveyed lands the condition and operations of the army and the state of other branches of the public service under the supervision of the war department are satisfactorily presented in the accompanying report of the secretary of war on the return of peace our forces were withdrawn from mexico and the volunteers and that portion of the regular army engaged for the war were disbanded orders have been issued for stationing the forces of our permanent establishment at various positions in our extended country where troops may be required owing to the remoteness of some of these positions the detachments have not yet reached their destination 
notwithstanding the extension of the limits of our country and the forces required in the new territories it is confidently believed that our present military establishment is sufficient for all exigencies so long as our peaceful relations remain undisturbed of the amount of military contributions collected in mexico the sum of seven hundred and sixty nine thousand six hundred and fifty dollars was applied toward the payment of the first installment due under the treaty with mexico the further sum of three hundred and forty six thousand three hundred and sixty nine dollars and thirty cents has been paid into the treasury and unexpended balances still remain in the hands of dispersing officers and those who were engaged in the collection of these monies after the proclamation of peace no further disbursements were made of any unexpected monies arising from this source the balances on hand were directed to be paid into the treasury and individual claims on the fund will remain unadjusted until congress shall authorize their settlement and payment these claims are not considerable in number or amount i recommend to your favorable consideration the suggestions of the secretary of war and the secretary of navy in regard to legislation on this subject our indian relations are presented in a most favorable view in the report from the war department the wisdom of our policy in regard to the tribes within our limits is clearly manifested by their improved and rapidly improving condition a most important treaty with the menominees has been recently negotiated by the commissioner of indian affairs in person by which all their land in the state of wisconsin being about four million acres has been ceded to the united states this treaty will be submitted to the senate for ratification at an early period of our present session within the last four years eight important treaties have been negotiated with different indian tribes and at a cost of one million eight hundred and forty eight thousand dollars indian lands to the amount of more than eighteen millions five hundred thousand acres have been ceded to the united states and provision has been made for settling in the country west of the mississippi the tribes which occupied this large extent of the public domain the title to all the indian lands within the several states of our union with the exception of a few small reservations is now extinguished and a vast region opened for settlement and cultivation the accompanying report of the secretary of the navy gives a satisfactory exhibit of the operations and condition of that branch of the public service a number of small vessels suitable for entering the mouths of rivers were judiciously purchased during the war and gave great efficiency to the squadron in the gulf of mexico on the return of peace when no longer valuable for naval purposes and liable to constant deterioration they were sold and the money placed in the treasury the number of men in the naval service authorized by law during the war has been reduced by discharges below the maximum fixed for the peace establishment adequate squadrons are maintained in the several quarters of the globe where experience has shown their services may be most usefully employed and the naval service was never in a condition of higher discipline or greater efficiency
i invite attention to the recommendation of the secretary of the navy on the subject of the marine corps the reduction of the corps at the end of the war required that four officers of each of the three lower grades should be dropped from the rolls a board of officers made the selection and those designated were necessarily dismissed but without any alleged fault i concur in opinion with the secretary that the service would be improved by reducing the number of landsmen and increasing the marines such a measure would justify an increase of the number of officers to the extent of the reduction by dismissal and still the corps would have fewer officers than a corresponding number of men in the army the contracts for the transportation of the mail in steamships convertible into war steamers promise to realize all the benefits to our commerce and to the navy which were anticipated the first steamer thus secured to the government was launched in january eighteen forty seven there are now seven and in another year there will probably be not less than seventeen afloat while this great national advantage is secured our social and commercial intercourse is increased and promoted with germany great britain and other parts of europe with all the countries on the west coast of our continent especially with oregon and california and between the northern and southern sections of the united states considerable revenue may be expected from postages but the connected line from new york to chagres and thence across the isthmus to oregon cannot fail to exert a beneficial influence not now to be estimated on the interests of the manufacturers commerce navigation and currency of the united states as an important part of the system i recommend to your favorable consideration the establishment of the proposed line of streamers between new orleans and vera cruz it promises the most happy results in cementing friendship between the two republics and extending reciprocal benefits to the trade and manufactures of both the report of the postmaster-general will make known to you the operations of that department for the past year it is gratifying to find the revenues of the department under the rates of postage now established by law so rapidly increasing the gross amount of postages during the last fiscal year amounted to four millions three hundred and seventy five thousand seventy seven dollars exceeding the annual average received for the nine years immediately preceding the passage of the act of third of march eighteen forty five by the sum of six thousand four hundred and fifty three dollars and exceeding the amount received for the year ending the thirtieth of june eighteen forty seven by the sum of four hundred and twenty five thousand one hundred and eighty four dollars the expenditures for the year excluding the sum of ninety four thousand six hundred and seventy two dollars allowed by congress at its last session to individual claimants and including the sum of one hundred thousand five hundred dollars paid for the services of the line of steamers between bremen and new york amounted to four millions one hundred and ninety eight thousand eight hundred and forty five dollars which is less than the annual average for the nine years previous to the act of eighteen forty five by three hundred thousand seven hundred and forty eight dollars the mail routes on the thirtieth day of june last were one hundred and sixty three thousand two hundred and eight miles in extent being an increase during the last year of nine thousand three hundred and ninety miles 
the mails were transported over them during the same time forty-one millions twelve thousand five hundred and seventy-nine miles making an increase of transportation for the year of two millions one hundred and twenty-four thousand six hundred and eighty miles whilst the expense was less than that of the previous year by four thousand two hundred and thirty-five dollars the increase in the mail transportation within the last three years has been five millions three hundred and seventy eight thousand three hundred and ten miles whilst the expenses were reduced by four hundred and fifty six thousand seven hundred and thirty eight dollars making an increase of service at the rate of fifteen per cent and a reduction in the expenses of more than fifteen per cent during the past year there have been employed under contracts with the post office department two ocean steamers in conveying the mails monthly between new york and bremen and one since october last performing semi-monthly service between charleston and havana and a contract has been made for the transportation of the pacific mails across the isthmus from chagres to panama under the authority given to the secretary of navy three ocean steamers have been constructed and sent to the pacific and are expected to enter upon the mail service between panama and oregon and the intermediate ports on the first of january next and a fourth has been engaged by him for the service between havana and chagres so that a regular monthly mail line will be kept up after that time between the united states and our territories on the pacific notwithstanding this great increase in the mail service should the revenue continue to increase the present year as it did in the last there will be received near four hundred and fifty thousand dollars more than the expenditures these considerations have satisfied the postmaster-general that with certain modifications of the act of eighteen forty five the revenue may be still further increased and a reduction of postages made to a uniform rate of five cents without an interference with the principle which has been constantly and properly enforced of making that department sustain itself a well-digested cheap postage system is the best means of diffusing intelligence among the people and is of so much importance in a country so extensive as that of the united states that i recommend to your favorable consideration the suggestions of the postmaster-general for its improvement nothing can retard the onward progress of our country and prevent us from assuming and maintaining the first rank among nations but a disregard of the experience of the past and a recurrence to an unwise public policy we have just closed a foreign war by an honorable peace a war rendered necessary and unavoidable in vindication of the national rights and honor the present condition of the country is similar in some respects to that which existed immediately after the close of the war with great britain in eighteen fifteen and the occasion is deemed to be a proper one to take a retrospect of the measures of public policy which followed that war there was at that period of our history a departure from our earlier policy the enlargement of the powers of the federal government by construction which obtained was not warranted by any just interpretation of the constitution a few years after the close of that war a series of measures was adopted which united and combined 
constituted what was termed by their authors and advocates the quote, american system unquote. the introduction of the new policy was for a time favored by the condition of the country by the heavy debt which had been contracted during the war by the depression of the public credit by the deranged state of the finances and the currency and by the commercial and pecuniary embarrassment which extensively prevailed these were not the only causes which led to its establishment the events of the war with great britain and the embarrassments which had attended its prosecution had left on the minds of many of our statesmen the impression that our government was not strong enough and that to wield its resources successfully in great emergencies and especially in war more power should be concentrated in its hands this increased power did not seek to obtain by the legitimate and prescribed mode an amendment of the constitution but by construction they saw governments in the old world based upon different orders of society and so constituted as to throw the whole power of nations into the hands of a few who taxed and controlled the many without responsibility or restraint in that arrangement they conceived the strength of nations in war consisted there was also something fascinating in the ease luxury and display of the higher orders who drew their wealth from the toil of the laboring millions the authors of the system drew their ideas of political economy from what they had witnessed in europe and particularly in great britain they had viewed the enormous wealth concentrated in few hands and had seen the splendor of the overgrown establishments of an aristocracy which was upheld by the restrictive policy they forgot to look down upon the poorer classes of the english population upon whose daily and yearly labor the great establishments they so much admired were sustained and supported they failed to perceive that the scantily fed and half-clad operatives were not only in abject poverty but were bound in chains of oppressive servitude for the benefit of favored classes who were the exclusive objects of the care of the government it was not possible to reconstruct society in the united states upon the european plan here there was a written constitution by which orders and titles were not recognized or tolerated a system of measures was therefore devised calculated if not intended to withdraw power gradually and silently from the states and the mass of the people and by construction to approximate our government to the european models substituting an aristocracy of wealth for that of orders and titles without reflecting upon the dissimilarity of our institutions and of the condition of our people and those of europe they conceived the vain idea of building up in the united states a system similar to that which they admired abroad great britain had a national bank of large capital in whose hands was concentrated the controlling monetary and financial power of the nation an institution wielding almost kingly power and exerting vast influence upon all the operations of trade and upon the policy of the government itself great britain had an enormous public debt and it had become a part of her public policy to regard this as a public blessing great britain had also a restrictive policy 
which placed fetters and burdens on trade and trammeled the productive industry of the mass of the nation by her combined system of policy the landlords and other property holders were protected and enriched by the enormous taxes which were levied upon the labor of the country for their advantage imitating this foreign policy the first step in establishing the new system in the united states was the creation of a national bank not foreseeing the dangerous power and countless evils which such an institution might entail on the country nor perceiving the connection which it was designed to form between the bank and the other branches of the miscalled american system but feeling the embarrassments of the treasury and of the business of the country consequent upon the war some of our statesmen who had held different and sounder views were induced to yield their scruples and indeed settled convictions of its unconstitutionality and to give it their sanction as an expedient which they vainly hoped might produce relief it was a most unfortunate error as the subsequent history and final catastrophe of that dangerous and corrupt institution have abundantly proved the bank with its numerous branches ramified into the states soon brought many of the active political and commercial men in different sections of the country into the relation of debtors to it and dependence upon it for pecuniary favors thus diffusing throughout the mass of society a great number of individuals of power and influence to give tone to the public opinion and to act in concert in cases of emergency the corrupt power of such a political engine is no longer a matter of speculation having been displayed in numerous instances but most signally in the political struggles of eighteen thirty two eighteen thirty three and eighteen thirty four in opposition to the public will represented by a fearless and patriotic president but the bank was but one branch of the new system a public debt of more than one hundred and twenty millions of dollars existed and it is not to be disguised that many of the authors of the new system did not regard its speedy payment as essential to the public prosperity but looked upon its continuance as no national evil whilst the debt existed it furnished aliment to the national bank and rendered increased taxation necessary to the amount of the interest exceeding seven millions of dollars annually this operated in harmony with the next branch of the new system which was a high protective tariff this was to afford bounties to favored classes and particular pursuits at the expense of all others a proposition to tax the whole people for the purpose of enriching a few was too monstrous to be openly made the scheme was therefore veiled under the plausible but delusive pretext of a measure to protect quote, home industry unquote. and many of our people were for a time led to believe that a tax which in the main fell upon labor was for the benefit of the laborer who paid it this branch of the system involved a partnership between the government and the favored classes the former receiving the proceeds of the tax imposed on articles imported and the latter the increased price of similar articles produced at home caused by such tax it is obvious that the portion to be received by the favored classes would as a general rule 
be increased in proportion to the increase of the rates of tax imposed and diminished as those rates were reduced to the revenue standard required by the wants of the government the rates required to produce a sufficient revenue for the ordinary expenditures of the government for necessary purposes were not likely to give to the private partners in this scheme profits sufficient to satisfy their cupidity and hence a variety of expedients and pretexts were resorted to for the purpose of enlarging the expenditures and thereby creating a necessity for keeping up a high protective tariff the effect of this policy was to interpose artificial restrictions upon the natural course of the business and trade of the country and to advance the interests of large capitalists and monopolists at the expense of the great mass of the people who were taxed to increase their wealth another branch of this system was a comprehensive scheme of internal improvements capable of indefinite enlargement and sufficient to swallow up as many millions annually as could be exacted from the foreign commerce of the country this was a convenient and necessary adjunct of the protective tariff it was to be the great absorbent of any surplus which might at any time accumulate in the treasury and of the taxes levied on the people not for necessary revenue purposes but for the avowed object of affording protection to the favored classes auxiliary to the same end if it was not an essential part of the system itself was the scheme which at a later period obtained for distributing the proceeds of the sales of the public lands among the states other expedients were devised to take money out of the treasury and prevent its coming in from any other source than the protective tariff the authors and supporters of the system were the advocates of the largest expenditures whether for necessary or useful purposes or not because the larger the expenditures the greater was the pretext for high taxes in the form of protective duties these several measures were sustained by popular names and plausible arguments by which thousands were deluded the bank was represented to be an indispensable fiscal agent for the government was to equalize exchanges and to regulate and furnish a sound currency always and everywhere of uniform value the protective tariff was to give employment to american labor at advanced prices was to protect home industry and furnish a steady market for the farmer internal improvements were to bring trade into every neighborhood and enhance the value of every man's property the distribution of the land money was to enrich the states finish their public works plant schools throughout their borders and relieve them from taxation but the fact that for every dollar taken out of the treasury for these objects a much larger sum was transferred from the pockets of the people to the favored classes was carefully concealed as was also the tendency if not the ultimate design of the system to build up an aristocracy of wealth to control the masses of society and monopolize the political power of the country the several branches of this system were so intimately blended together that in their operation each sustained and strengthened the others 
their joint operation was to add new burdens of taxation and to encourage a largely increased and wasteful expenditure of public money it was the interest of the bank that the revenue collected and the disbursements made by the government should be large because being the depository of the public money the larger the amount the greater would be the bank profits by its use it was the interest of the favored classes who were enriched by the protective tariff to have the rates of that protection as high as possible for the higher those rates the greater would be their advantage it was the interest of the people of all those sections and localities who expected to be benefited by expenditures for internal improvements that the amount collected should be as large as possible to the end that the sum dispersed might also be the larger the states being the beneficiaries in the distribution of the land money had an interest in having the rates of tax imposed by the protective tariff large enough to yield a sufficient revenue from that source to meet the wants of the government without disturbing or taking from them the land fund so that each of the branches constituting the system had a common interest in swelling the public expenditures they had a direct interest in maintaining the public debt unpaid and increasing its amount because this would produce an annual increased drain upon the treasury to the amount of the interest and render augmented taxes necessary the operation and necessary effect of the whole system were to encourage large and extravagant expenditures and thereby to increase the public patronage and maintain a rich and splendid government at the expense of a taxed and impoverished people it is manifest that this scheme of enlarged taxation and expenditures had it continued to prevail must soon have converted the government of the union intended by its framers to be a plain cheap and simple confederation of states united together for common protection and charged with a few specific duties relating chiefly to our foreign affairs into a consolidated empire depriving the states of their reserved rights and the people of their just power and control in the administration of their government in this manner the whole form and character of the government would be changed not by an amendment of the constitution but by resorting to an unwarrantable and unauthorized construction of that instrument the direct mode of levying the taxes by a duty on imports prevents the mass of the people from readily perceiving the amount they pay and has enabled the few who are thus enriched and who seek to wield the political power of the country to deceive and delude them were the taxes collected by a direct levy upon the people as is the case in the states this could not occur the whole system was resisted from its inception by many of our ablest statesmen some of whom doubted its constitutionality and its expediency while others believed it was in all its branches a flagrant and dangerous infraction of the constitution that a national bank a protective tariff levied not to raise the revenue needed but for protection merely internal improvements and the distribution of the proceeds of the sale of the public lands are measures without the warrant of the constitution would 
upon the maturest consideration seem to be clear it is remarkable that no one of these measures involving such momentous consequences is authorized by any express grant of power in the constitution no one of them is quote, incident to as being necessary and proper for the execution of the specific powers unquote, granted by the constitution the authority on which it has been attempted to justify each of them is derived from inferences and constructions of the constitution which its letter and its whole object and design do not warrant is it to be conceived that such immense powers would have been left by the framers of the constitution to mere inferences and doubtful constructions had it been intended to confer them on the federal government it is but reasonable to conclude that it would have been done by plain and unequivocal grants this was not done but the whole structure of which the quote, american system unquote, consisted was reared on no other or better foundation than forced implications and inferences of power which its authors assumed might be deduced by construction from the constitution but it has been urged that the national bank which constituted so essential a branch of this combined system of measures was not a new measure and that its constitutionality had been previously sanctioned because a bank had been chartered in seventeen ninety one and had received the official signature of president washington a few facts will show the just weight to which this precedent should be entitled as bearing upon the question of constitutionality great division of opinion upon the subject existed in congress it is well known that president washington entertained serious doubts both as to the constitutionality and expediency of the measure and while the bill was before him for his official approval or disapproval so great were these doubts that he required quote, the opinion in writing unquote, of the members of his cabinet to aid him in arriving at a decision his cabinet gave their opinions and were divided upon the subject general hamilton being in favor of and mr jefferson and mr randolph being opposed to the constitutionality and expediency of the bank it is well known also that president washington retained the bill from monday the fourteenth when it was presented to him until friday the twenty fifth of february being the last moment permitted him by the constitution to deliberate when he finally yielded to it his reluctant assent and gave it his signature it is certain that as late as the twenty-third of february being the ninth day after the bill was presented to him he had arrived at no satisfactory conclusion for on that day he addressed a note to general hamilton in which he informs him that quote, this bill was presented to me by the joint committee of congress at twelve o'clock on monday the fourteenth instant unquote. and he requested his opinion quote, to what precise period by legal interpretation of the constitution can the president retain it in his possession before it becomes a law by the lapse of ten days Unquote. if the proper construction was that the day on which the bill was presented to the president and the day on which his action was had upon it were both to be counted inclusive then the time allowed him within which it would be competent for him to return it to the house 
in which it originated with his objections would expire on thursday the twenty fourth of february general hamilton on the same day returned an answer in which he states i give it as my opinion that you have ten days exclusive of that on which the bill was delivered to you and sundays hence in the present case if it is returned on friday it will be in time by this construction which the president adopted he gained another day for deliberation and it was not until the twenty fifth of february that he signed the bill thus affording conclusive proof that he had at last obtained his own consent to sign it not without great and almost insuperable difficulty additional light has seen recently shed upon the serious doubts which he had on the subject amounting at one time to a conviction that it was his duty to withhold his approval from the bill this is found among the manuscript papers of mr madison authorized to be purchased for the use of the government by an act of the last session of congress and now for the first time accessible to the public from these papers it appears that president washington while he yet held the bank bill in his hands actually requested mr madison at that time a member of the house of representatives to prepare the draft of a veto message for him mr madison at his request did prepare the draft of such a message and sent it to him on the twenty first of february seventeen ninety one a copy of this original draft in mr madison's own handwriting was carefully preserved by him and is among the papers lately purchased by congress it is preceded by a note written on the same sheet which is also in mr madison's handwriting and is as follows february twenty first seventeen ninety one copy of a paper made out and sent to the president at his request to be ready in case his judgment should finally decide against the bill for incorporating a national bank the bill being then before him among the objections assigned in this paper to the bill and which were submitted for the consideration of the president are the following i object to the bill because it is an essential principle of the government that powers not delegated by the constitution cannot be rightfully exercised because the power proposed by the bill to be exercised is not expressly delegated and because i cannot satisfy myself that it results from any express power by fair and safe rules of interpretation the weight of the precedent of the bank of seventeen ninety one and the sanction of the great name of washington which has been so often invoked in its support are greatly weakened by the development of these facts the experiment of that bank satisfied the country that it ought not to be continued and at the end of twenty years congress refused to recharter it it would have been fortunate for the country and saved thousands from bankruptcy and ruin had our public men of eighteen sixteen resisted the temporary pressure of the times upon our financial and pecuniary interests and refused to charter the second bank of this the country became abundantly satisfied and at the close of its twenty years duration as in the case of the first bank it also ceased to exist under the repeated blows of president jackson it reeled and fell and a subsequent attempt to charter a similar institution was arrested by the veto of president tyler mr madison in yielding his signature to the charter of eighteen sixteen did so upon the ground of the respect due to precedence 
and as he subsequently declared the bank of the united states though on the original question held to be unconstitutional received the executive signature it is probable that neither the bank of seventeen ninety one nor that of eighteen sixteen would have been chartered but for the embarrassments of the government in its finances the derangement of the currency and the pecuniary pressure which existed the first the consequence of the war of the revolution and the second the consequence of the war of eighteen twelve both were resorted to in the delusive hope that they would restore public credit and afford relief to the government and to the business of the country those of our public men who opposed the whole quote, american system unquote, at its commencement and throughout its progress foresaw and predicted that it was fraught with incalculable mischiefs and must result in serious injury to the best interests of the country for a series of years their wise counsels were unheeded and the system was established it was soon apparent that its practical operation was unequal and unjust upon different portions of the country and upon the people engaged in different pursuits all were equally entitled to the favor and protection of the government it fostered and elevated the money power and enriched the favored few by taxing labor and at the expense of the many its effect was to quote, make the rich richer and the poor poorer unquote. its tendency was to create distinctions in society based on wealth and to give to the favored classes undue control and sway in our government it was an organized money power which resisted the popular will and sought to shape and control the public policy under the pernicious workings of this combined system of measures the country witnessed alternate seasons of temporary apparent prosperity of sudden and disastrous commercial revulsions of unprecedented fluctuation of prices and depression of the great interests of agriculture navigation and commerce of general pecuniary suffering and a final bankruptcy of thousands after a severe struggle of more than a quarter of a century the system was overthrown the bank has been succeeded by a practical system of finance conducted and controlled solely by the government the constitutional currency has been restored the public credit maintained unimpaired even in a period of foreign war and the whole country has become satisfied that banks national or state are not necessary as fiscal agents of the government revenue duties have taken the place of the protective tariff the distribution of the money derived from the sale of the public lands has been abandoned and the corrupting system of internal improvements it is hoped has been effectually checked it is not doubted that if this whole train of measures designed to take wealth from the many and bestow it upon the few were to prevail the effect would be to change the entire character of the government one only danger remains it is the seductions of that branch of the system which consists in internal improvements holding out as it does inducements to the people of particular sections and localities to embark the government in them without stopping to calculate the inevitable consequences this branch of the system is so intimately combined and linked with the others 
that as surely as an effect is produced by an adequate cause if it be resuscitated and revived and firmly established it requires no sagacity to foresee that it will necessarily and speedily draw after it the re-establishment of a national bank the revival of a protective tariff the distribution of the land money and not only the postponement to the distant future of the payment of the present national debt but its annual increase i entertain the solemn conviction that if the internal improvement branch of the quote, american system unquote, be not firmly resisted at this time the whole series of measures composing it will be speedily re-established and the country be thrown back from its present high state of prosperity which the existing policy has produced and be destined again to witness all the evils commercial revulsions depression of prices and pecuniary embarrassments through which we have passed during the last twenty-five years to guard against consequences so ruinous is an object of high national importance involving in my judgment the continued prosperity of the country i have felt it to be an imperative obligation to withhold my constitutional sanction from two bills which had passed the two houses of congress involving the principle of the internal improvement branch of the quote, american system unquote, and conflicting in their provisions with the views here expressed this power conferred upon the president by the constitution i have on three occasions during my administration of the executive department of the government deemed it my duty to exercise and on this last occasion of making to congress an annual communication quote, of the state of the union unquote, it is not deemed inappropriate to review the principles and considerations which have governed my action i deem this the more necessary because after the lapse of nearly sixty years since the adoption of the constitution the propriety of the exercise of this undoubted constitutional power by the president has for the first time been drawn seriously in question by a portion of my fellow citizens the constitution provides that every bill which shall have passed the house of representatives and the senate shall before it become a law be presented to the president of the united states if he approve he shall sign it but if not he shall return it with his objections to that house in which it shall have originated who shall enter the objections at large on their journal and proceed to reconsider it the preservation of the constitution from infraction is the president's highest duty he is bound to discharge that duty at whatever hazard of incurring the displeasure of those who may differ with him in opinion he is bound to discharge it as well by his obligations to the people who have clothed him with his exalted trust as by his oath of office which he may not disregard nor are the obligations of the president in any degree lessened by the prevalence of views different from his own in one or both houses of congress it is not alone hasty and inconsiderate legislation that he is required to check but if at any time congress shall after apparently full deliberation resolve on measures which he deems subversive of the constitution or of the vital interests of the country it is his solemn duty to stand in the breach and resist them the president is bound to approve or disapprove every bill which passes congress and is presented to him for his signature the constitution makes this his duty and he cannot escape it if he would he has no election 
in deciding upon any bill presented to him he must exercise his own best judgment if he cannot approve the constitution commands him to return the bill to the house in which it originated with his objections and if he fail to do this within ten days sundays excepted it shall become a law without his signature right or wrong he may be overruled by a vote of two-thirds of each house and in that event the bill becomes a law without his sanction if his objections be not thus overruled the subject is only postponed and is referred to the states and the people for their consideration and decision the president's power is negative merely and not affirmative he can enact no law the only effect therefore of his withholding his approval of a bill passed by congress is to suffer the existing laws to remain unchanged and the delay occasioned is only that required to enable the states and the people to consider and act upon the subject in the election of public agents who will carry out their wishes and instructions any attempt to coerce the president to yield his sanction to measures which he cannot approve would be a violation of the spirit of the constitution palpable and flagrant and if successful would break down the independence of the executive department and make the president elected by the people and clothed by the constitution with power to defend their rights the mere instrument of a majority of congress a surrender on his part of the powers with which the constitution has invested his office would effect a practical alteration of that instrument without resorting to the prescribed process of amendment with the motives or considerations which may induce congress to pass any bill the president can have nothing to do he must presume them to be as pure as his own and look only to the practical effect of their measures when compared with the constitution or the public good but it has been urged by those who object to the exercise of this undoubted constitutional power that it assails the representative principle and the capacity of the people to govern themselves that there is greater safety in a numerous representative body than in the single executive created by the constitution and that the executive veto is a quote, one man power unquote, despotic in its character to expose the fallacy of this objection it is only necessary to consider the frame and true character of our system ours is not a consolidated empire but a confederated union the states before the adoption of the constitution were coordinate co-equal and separate independent sovereignties and by its adoption they did not lose that character they clothed the federal government with certain powers and reserved all others including their own sovereignty to themselves they guarded their own rights as states and the rights of the people by the very limitations which they incorporated into the federal constitution whereby the different departments of the general government were checks upon each other that the majority should govern is a general principle controverted by none but they must govern according to the constitution and not according to an undefined and unrestrained discretion whereby they may oppress the minority the people of the united states are not blind to the fact that they may be temporarily misled and that their representatives legislative and executive may be mistaken or influenced in their action by improper motives they have therefore interposed between themselves and the laws which may be passed by their public agents various representations such as assemblies senates 
and governors in their several states a house of representatives a senate and a president of the united states the people can by their own direct agency make no law nor can the house of representatives immediately elected by them nor can the senate nor can both together without the concurrence of the president or a vote of two-thirds of both houses happily for themselves the people in framing our admirable system of government were conscious of the infirmities of their representatives and in delegating to them the power of legislation they have fenced them around with checks to guard against the effects of hasty action of error of combination and of possible corruption error selfishness and faction have often sought to rend asunder this web of checks and subject the government to the control of fanatic and sinister influences but these efforts have only satisfied the people of the wisdom of the checks which they have imposed and of the necessity of preserving them unimpaired the true theory of our system is not to govern by the acts or decrees of any one set of representatives the constitution interposes checks upon all branches of the government in order to give time for error to be corrected and delusion to pass away but if the people settle down into a firm conviction different from that of their representatives they give effect to their opinions by changing their public servants the checks which the people imposed on their public servants in the adoption of the constitution are the best evidence of their capacity for self-government they know that the men whom they elect to public stations are of like infirmities and passions with themselves and not to be trusted without being restricted by coordinate authorities and constitutional limitations who that has witnessed the legislation of congress for the last thirty years will say that he knows of no instance in which measures not demanded by the public good have been carried who will deny that in the state governments by combinations of individuals and sections in derogation of the general interest banks have been chartered systems of internal improvements adopted and debts entailed upon the people repressing their growth and impairing their energies for years to come after so much experience it cannot be said that absolute unchecked power is safe in the hands of any one set of representatives or that the capacity of the people for self-government which is admitted in its broadest extent is a conclusive argument to prove the prudence wisdom and integrity of their representatives the people by the constitution have commanded the president as much as they have commanded the legislative branch of the government to execute their will they have said to him in the constitution which they require he shall take a solemn oath to support that if congress pass any bill which he cannot approve quote, he shall return it to the house in which it originated with his objections unquote. in withholding from it his approval and signature he is executing the will of the people constitutionally expressed as much as the congress that passed it no bill is presumed to be in accordance with the popular will until it shall have passed through all the branches of the government required by the constitution to make it a law a bill which passes the house of representatives may be rejected by the senate and so a bill passed by the senate may be rejected by the house in each case the respective houses exercise the veto power on the other congress and each house of congress 
hold under the constitution a check upon the president and he by the power of the qualified veto a check upon congress when the president recommends measures to congress he avows in the most solemn form his opinions gives his voice in their favor and pledges himself in advance to approve them if passed by congress if he acts without due consideration or has been influenced by improper or corrupt motives or if from any other cause congress or either house of congress shall differ with him in opinion they exercise their veto upon his recommendations and reject them and there is no appeal from their decision but to the people at the ballot-box these are proper checks upon the executive wisely interposed by the constitution none will be found to object to them or to wish them removed it is equally important that the constitutional checks of the executive upon the legislative branch should be preserved if it be said that the representatives in the popular branch of congress are chosen directly by the people it is answered the people elect the president if both houses represent the states and the people so does the president the president represents in the executive department the whole people of the united states as each member of the legislative department represents portions of them the doctrine of restriction upon legislative and executive power while a well-settled public opinion is enabled within a reasonable time to accomplish its ends has made our country what it is and has opened to us a career of glory and happiness to which all other nations have been strangers in the exercise of the power of the veto the president is responsible not only to an enlightened public opinion but to the people of the whole union who elected him as the representatives in the legislative branches who differ with him in opinion are responsible to the people of particular states or districts who compose their respective constituencies to deny to the president the exercise of this power would be to repeal that provision of the constitution which confers it upon him to charge that its exercise unduly controls the legislative will is to complain of the constitution itself if the presidential veto be objected to upon the ground that it checks and thwarts the popular will upon the same principle the equality of representation of the states in the senate should be stricken out of the constitution the vote of a senator from delaware has equal weight in deciding upon the most important measures with the vote of a senator from new york and yet the one represents a state containing according to the existing apportionment of representatives in the house of representatives but one thirty-fourth part of the population of the other by the constitutional composition of the senate a majority of that body from the smaller states represent less than one-fourth of the people of the union there are thirty states and under the existing apportionment of representatives there are two hundred and thirty members in the house of representatives sixteen of the smaller states are represented in that house by but fifty members and yet the senators from these states constitute a majority of the senate so that the president may recommend a measure to congress and it may receive the sanction and approval of more than three-fourths of the house of representatives and of all the senators from the large states containing more than three-fourths of the whole population of the united states and yet the measure may be defeated by the votes of the senators from the smaller states 
none it is presumed can be found ready to change the organization of the state on this account or to strike that body practically out of existence by requiring that its action shall be conformed to the will of the more numerous branch upon the same principle that the veto of the president should be practically abolished the power of the vice-president to give the casting vote upon an equal division of the senate should be abolished also the vice-president exercises the veto power as effectually by rejecting a bill by his casting vote as the president does by refusing to approve and sign it this power has been exercised by the vice-president in a few instances the most important of which was the rejection of the bill to recharter the bank of the united states in eighteen eleven it may happen that a bill may be passed by a large majority of the house of representatives and may be supported by the senators from the larger states and the vice-president may reject it by giving his vote with the senators from the smaller states and yet none it is presumed are prepared to deny to him the exercise of this power under the constitution but it is in point of fact untrue that an act passed by congress is conclusive evidence that it is an emanation of the popular will a majority of the whole number elected to each house of congress constitutes a quorum and a majority of that quorum is competent to pass laws it might happen that a quorum of the house of representatives consisting of a single member more than half of the whole number elected to that house might pass a bill by a majority of a single vote and in that case a fraction more than one-fourth of the people of the united states would be represented by those who voted for it it might happen that the same bill might be passed by a majority of one of a quorum of the senate composed of senators from the fifteen smaller states and a single senator from a sixteenth state and if the senators voting for it happened to be from the eight of the smallest of these states it would be passed by the votes of senators from states having but fourteen representatives in the house of representatives and containing less than one-sixteenth of the whole population of the united states this extreme case is stated to illustrate the fact that the mere passage of a bill by congress is no conclusive evidence that those who passed it represent the majority of the people of the united states or truly reflect their will if such an extreme case is not likely to happen cases that approximate it are of constant occurrence it is believed that not a single law has been passed since the adoption of the constitution upon which all the members elected to both houses have been present and voted many of the most important acts which have passed congress have been carried by a close vote in thin houses many instances of this might be given indeed our experience proves that many of the most important acts of congress are postponed to the last days and often the last hours of a session when they are disposed of in haste and by houses but little exceeding the number of necessary to form a quorum end of part two of james polk's fourth annual message to congress read by john greenman